Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In the early morning hours of July 19, 1969, the phone rang with a message that was brief but clear. Get out to Martha's Vineyard as fast as you can, Tony. Kennedy's car ran off a bridge last night. There was a girl in it. She's dead. The caller was Jack Caulfield, the head of security for President Richard Nixon. The man who answered was Tony Elasowitz. He was President Nixon's private investigator, and this was one of his first assignments. Nixon had questions, and Elasowitz was sent to Chappaquiddick to answer them. Turns out the man who later became known as the Bagman of Watergate may also be the man who knew more about Chappaquiddick than anyone else. That's what White House counsel John Dean once told President Nixon that Tony Elasowitz knew more about Chappaquiddick than any living human being. Previously on Cover Up. Ted was regarded as the clown of the family, the guy, you know, the fat boy, the guy that couldn't, uh, couldn't get it right. And that was, uh, that was a burden to him. When my Uncle Bobby was killed, it was like absolutely the floor dropped out for my father. Absolutely the floor because they got to be buddies in the United States Senate. Those were the glory days for my dad. You ever ask anyone, my dad was the happiest he ever was when he had his brother. Then his brother was killed. Boom. Over. Show over. They never had those last moments of their daughter's life from anybody. He felt his father was so disheartened by the Chappaquiddick situation that that's what caused him to stop eating, starve himself. And he ultimately starved to death. And Ted said, you know, I, I killed my father. There is no truth, no truth whatever, to the widely circulated suspicions of immoral conduct that have been leveled at my behavior and hers regarding that evening. There has never been a private relationship between us of any kind. I couldn't even talk about it. I was hostage to the family code that, no, don't say anything about it. Anything you say, it's disloyal, it's against the family code, and it doesn't matter whether it's in a private therapy session. That psychiatrist could go out and tell somebody. I wondered if he even knew she was in the car. She was the type of person that rather than break somebody's fun up, she might climb into the back seat and sleep. She was not a drinker. And the stories afterwards that he dived back in to try to get her out, I have a feeling that maybe he didn't even know she was there. And, you know, I hate to say it, he got away with murder. I'm Liz McNeil, and this is Cover Up. Tony Elasowitz didn't even know how to spell Chappaquiddick when he answered the call. But he got there before sunset and immediately went to work. He's in the middle now of Chappaquiddick. Nobody else is out there yet. He's like pretty much the first on the scene following that accident because we had the moon landing at about that same time. And everybody was covering the moon landing and the reporters and whatnot had not yet descended. And he knew he had probably about 24 hours to do the work he wanted to do before all of the reporters 
uh, started to move in. And within that 24 hours time, he did a, uh, a heck of a lot of investigations. That's Peter Yulasiewicz. He's one of Tony's sons. As it turns out, his father had kept the tapes of his interviews after his memoir, The President's Private Eye, was published in 1990. And he liked to record things, his son said. It's one of my favorite details, that Nixon's private investigator sometimes carried a tape recorder around with him, and his kids teased him about it. Before he died in 1997, he gave the cassettes to his children, and his son Peter shared them with us. The first thing Elasowitz did after arriving in Chappaquiddick on July 19th was to retrace Senator Kennedy's steps. He visited the cottage where the reunion party for RFK's campaign workers had been held. And then he drove to the Dyke Bridge, where the accident had occurred. I started with the bridge, of course. Now it was evening. It was going towards dusk. I wanted exactly to be there at the time that this incident had taken place the day before. At one point, I took off my shoe socks and rolled my pants up to my knees. I imagined where was the bumper, the rear bumper of the car, as I stepped into the water. Because it's not a deep pond, as you know, nine feet or so at the point. So uh, I was actually able to reach forward without getting my waist wet above my knees and touch where the bumper would have been, which of course opened another situation that that this was not a buried car and a lot of water with such strong currents and all that business. Yulasowicz thought this meant that Mary Jo could have been saved. Now, Senator Kennedy was an expert swimmer, so reported. I am an expert swimmer. I learned in the best place in the world, the East River, what these 10th Street... Somebody threw you off? Uh, no, we swam there. That was our, you fellas up here in the country got your ponds and your lakes. We had our East You had the East River. There was only, only one unwritten law. You never swam at low tide. Because that's when the sewer's empty. But anyway, and everybody was an expert in breaststroke. And I mean that in the water, not in the bed. Yes, I know. Yulasowicz had grown up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, the son of Polish immigrants. Here's Peter on how his dad became a cop. He grew up in kind of a rough and tumble area where kind of anything went, you know, the streets were fairly dangerous. And the patrolman would come and wrap his baton on either the lamp post or the end of the street or a railing to let every kid know on the street that he was there and that he was now going to be patrolling the streets. And my dad said it was like Pavlov's dog. Now, they said everybody would kind of straighten, you'd straighten your back as a kid and and uh, and walk right. But in his dream, his life's dream was always to become um, a New York City cop, which he did. And when Yulasowicz got to Chappaquiddick, he used what he'd learned after 28 years with the NYPD. I didn't care, Republican or Democrat, it didn't matter. I wanted the facts. My investigation, I decided at that moment, would start for what I called a splash. Now, the word cover-up is relatively new in those days, because cover-up uh, was born really with Watergate. But it is the right term and the best to understand. From the moment of the splash, let me tell you, everything was cover-up. Cover-up by commission and omission, by saying things that were lies and by omitting the truth. It was a complete and very well done cover-up. I went to the cabin immediately where the party was held. It was cleaned out. There wasn't a, a sheet of notepaper or anything. No bottles, anything of that type. Yulasowicz made no written reports. Everything was done verbally. So that night, he called his boss, Jack Caulfield. He told him the right turn the senator had taken to the Dyke Bridge was almost perpendicular to the main road. 
and could not have been an accidental turn. If Kennedy went for the bridge, it was deliberate, he said. The next day, he went to the Edgartown Funeral Home, where Mary Jo's body had been embalmed, and spoke to the director, Eugene Fry. Fry told him Mary Jo had been dead for approximately six hours when her body was pulled out of the car, which would mean she died sometime around 2 a.m. Ted's statement to the police was that the car went off the bridge sometime after 11.15 p.m. that night. If Fry was right, that meant Mary Jo may have been alive in the car for an undetermined amount of time, fighting for her life. The medical examiner had ruled death by drowning, but in Tony Yelasowicz's mind, something didn't add up. There was no arrest made. He was only charged as a summons deal, leaving the scene of an accident. Uh, actually, it's a homicide of some degree. I don't say it's a murder. It could be manslaughter. It's uh, the basis a uh, vehicular homicide which requires incarceration, at least overnight. Uh, fingerprinting, that whole thing is a normal procedure. This was not done. I didn't do that. I went to the uh, funeral parlor uh, to speak to the fellow who had handled Mary Jo's remains. He, he described to me the uh, examination, the fact that there was foam in, at the mouth and all that, which would indicate asphyxiation, lack of oxygen, rather than, than drowning. But without an autopsy, it was impossible to exactly determine the details. In covering up of evidence, uh, there was no autopsy, which in itself was remarkable. When you go to the police academy in the city of New York and you thought about autopsies, the importance of medical examinations, medical examiners. And the example I used to use kind of to impress this is if a guy jumped off the Empire State Building, landed on a sidewalk, if there was enough to pick up with a tablespoon, there was an autopsy. And here we had poor Mary Jo there, and, and nothing was done. And it doesn't make sense, so much of it don't, that it must be covered up because it might have been to uh, Senator Kennedy's advantage to have the autopsy. Uh, because human nature being what it is, there is a suspicion, well, there are other reasons somebody didn't want an autopsy. His next stop was the Edgartown Police Station. The blotter had an entry that there was a handbag, uh, a lady's handbag in back of the car. I said, what was within it? Now, that's an important thing. She said, well, sir, just before you came in, a gentleman in a blue suit, in a dark blue suit, came in, and we gave him the handbag. No identity, no entry in the blotter. Just handed to him a vital piece of, of uh, evidence. Uh, I went to the motel where the girls were, the, uh, the remainder of the boiler room girls. Gone. They were whisked away. No interviews, casual interviews. Nobody under oath. There were three things that Tony Elasowitz zeroed in on. The first was the purse, Rosemary Keough's purse, that had been found in Ted's car the next morning. The man in the dark blue suit who picked up the purse was later identified as Charlie Treader during the inquest. He's one of the men who attended the reunion party that night. And when I phoned him a few months ago, he quickly hung up. But at the police station, Tony was told, since the purse didn't belong to Mary Jo, there was no reason to keep it. That isn't how they did it at the NYPD. I was uh, flabbergasted that each step that I wanted to take next, which was correct, was stopped or blocked. And so I reported to the Washington people, I want to tell you, somebody has got an open line in some police department, whether it's Massachusetts State Police, the local police, or both. But the, they are definitely erasing what a detective would be trying to follow. Yelasowitz elaborated on this point in another recording. I was not there as a police officer. 
But it was very apparent that nobody was telling, was either lying or deliberately omitting to tell the truth. The pressures must have been tremendous from Senator Kennedy in his own home state. When I heard about Tony Alasowitz, my first question was, isn't it unusual for a president to have his own private investigator? The answer is yes. And secondly, how to get the job. As his son Peter explains, it all began with his work with the NYPD, where his father had been assigned to a secret department called the Bureau of Special Services and Investigations. The acronym was BOSSI, B-O-S-S-I. BOSSI was kind of put into um, formation to form a unit of uh, detectives who would kind of oversee and make sure that people coming into the United States that were now here, if there were any questionable characters, they would watch the streets of New York City and and try to keep um, you know a lid on things. And if there, as as people got identified as criminal elements, no matter where they were from. Uh, the Bureau of Special Investigations would basically watch them, tail them, and in some ways try to infiltrate their organizations. Bossy decided that they wanted a way to infiltrate some of these groups that not only were the New York City police uh, interested in, but at this time, the FBI and even the CIA was starting to get more interested in some of these, quote, subversive groups. Through that work, he became more connected with the FBI and with the CIA. And at one point, one of the detectives from the Bureau of Special Investigation, as Nixon was um, running for president, this gentleman got called upon to run Nixon's security detail. So Nixon gets elected, decides that apparently he wants to have a completely confidential um, wing out of the White House or group out of the White House that would basically function as his private investigator in order to look into any particular issues that Nixon might care to look into. He was to be um, not be on any payroll. He was to be paid out of the committee to reelect the president, I believe it was. The acronym there, terrible acronym was CREEP. But basically, he was... Yeah, whoever thought that one up, I don't know. The guy who ran the security detail was Jack Caulfield, a former bossy detective. And he recruited Yulasowicz for the PI job. And he was to be on call 24-7. In this clip from the 1973 Watergate hearings, Yulasowicz describes the types of individuals he would investigate. What other types of individuals did you investigate? In a, again, in a, in a category right. form. Without they might be, members, uh, might be members of, uh, of a political family. It might be uh, a son or a nephew or something of that type. That's nice. uh, perhaps an allegation of some possible misconduct, and I would go out on it and to see if whether or not it was true and uh, develop it and then return my, uh, give my report. And that would likewise be done by going into the area, possibly making my own observations, uh, interviewing people that uh, might be familiar with the uh, circumstances, the surroundings. I would determine uh, habits, etc. So why was President Nixon so fixated on Chappaquiddick? He'd been in office nearly seven months by the time of the accident. But he viewed Ted Kennedy as a potential threat to his political future and his chances for re-election in 1972. And he wanted some dirt. 
Here's Peter. I think Nixon was worried about everybody as a political opponent. I think he had a draw full of uh, opposition research on on everybody, Republicans, Democrats, uh, uh, maybe his in-laws. There would be calls in the middle of the night for various uh, assignments when he was at the White House. Invariably, it got to the point that we would know when the phone would ring, dad would be packing that duffel bag and he would be going somewhere to some assignment. So that's the backstory of how Tony Alasowitz ended up on assignment in Chappaquiddick. On his second day there, Yelasowitz went to the Katama Shores Motel, where the boiler room girls, the five women who attended the party, along with Mary Jo Kopechny, had stayed during their visit to Martha's Vineyard. Behind the motel area where the girls were situated was a, a large swampy area, and there was a plane uh, standing still. It was tied by two to cord, you know, from each wing. Uh, later on, I discovered that there was a report by people in the area, a plane had flown over uh, that area. But at this time, that's all I can report, that there was a plane, and that was never reported anywhere. And after Rosemary Keough's purse, the plane was the second thing that Tony Lasowitz zeroed in on. Here's Peter. What I understood was it looked like an abandoned airstrip, and because it was not a um, an airport of any sort, the flight did not have to be logged uh, in or out. What I believe, in uh, in terms of what my dad had written and you know what he had said, the belief that you know if there were phone calls in fact made, that somebody or some individuals were. Uh, potentially flown in Mm -hmm. to assist with um, what would be this cover-up. And they would be able to come in and to come out, you know, unbeknownst to anybody by virtue of this area. And before we get to the third thing that Yelasowitz zeroed in on, here's something to know about him. Tony Yelasowitz didn't say he was a private investigator when he was asking questions. Nor did he say he worked for President Nixon. He said he was a reporter by the name of Ed Ferguson. Ed had fake press credentials. He said he was with the American Feature Writers Association, an association which didn't exist. And this allowed him to ask questions without anyone asking him any. The perfect cover. Yulasowicz figured he had a 24-hour advantage over the other reporters before they arrived on Martha's Vineyard. The media heavyweights, as he called them, were busy covering the moon landing. Because on the very same weekend that Ted Kennedy's car went off a bridge in Chappaquiddick, a man set foot on the moon for the very first time. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Just as President Kennedy had once envisioned, that someday a man would walk on the moon and return safely back to Earth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The irony was not lost, that as Apollo 11 landed on the moon's surface and Neil Armstrong had taken his first steps, fulfilling the promise of JFK and the space program and the Kennedy legacy, something was happening that would shake it to its very foundation. But that was still to come, And once the network's lead reporters had filed their stories on the moon landing, they descended on Martha's Vineyard. My name is Liz Trotta. My connection to Chappaquiddick is that at the time, I covered the story 
for NBC News. Well, as often happens, it was on my day off, and they were rare in those days. And uh, I was on my way to a wedding, and the phone rang, of course, and they said, don't even pack anything. But Ted Kennedy's just gone off a bridge. Liz Trotta was one of the most aggressive reporters on the Chappaquiddick case. She covered the war in Vietnam for NBC, and she later became a contributor, and a controversial one, for Fox News. A Kennedy fan, she was not. And she says you can't imagine the sway their family had over the media back then. The Kennedys had the town wrapped. They really did, and it was also part of a general myth, and I use that in the classical sense among reporters, that you really don't touch the Kennedys. I mean, after all, RFK, his brother, had been assassinated just a year before, and In 1963, his elder brother, the president of the United States, had been shot and killed. That really was a down payment on positive coverage and insurance against any kind of retribution for Mary Jo's death. That didn't stop Trotta from accosting Ted Kennedy at the Edgartown Airport on July 22nd, upon his return from the funeral of Mary Jo Kopechny. She asked him how the accident would affect his political career. He said something to the effect, I've just been to the funeral of a very lovely young woman and I'm not going to, you know, start talking about this was beneath him. Afterwards, Trotta says, a Kennedy family representative called the network to complain. And that's when she suspected they weren't getting the full story. It certainly dawned on me when my employer, NBC News, had delegated somebody to come to me and and tell me that the Kennedys had called the network and asked that I be removed from the story. And the guys I worked for were grizzled newspaper veterans. And, you know, they were from a different culture. And they said, what? They didn't care what the president of the United States called. No, this is, we do what we do. We do news. But the word cover-up wasn't even used in those days. It didn't really come into being until uh, Watergate. I thought it was disgraceful. And it made me mad, too, because I didn't have that I didn't see stardust when I looked at them. I still don't, of course, but in those days, it just, it wasn't, yes, I was very sad about the assassinations. Who wouldn't be? But uh, that's a separate story and uh, shouldn't be allowed to influence anything else, and it did. In 1969, the term cover-up was not yet part of the news vernacular. And how strange is it that Nixon's private investigator, Tony Alasowitz, who later became one of the more memorable characters in Watergate, the ultimate cover-up, was also a character in the shadows of Chappaquiddick. Yulasiewicz became something of a comic figure with his streetwise comments during the 1973 Watergate hearings when he testified about his role as the bag man. He's the guy who delivered the hush money in brown paper bags to E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, two of the men who directed the Watergate break-in. As Yulasiewicz later told his son, Right job, wrong president. But before Watergate, there was Chappaquiddick. And in Chappaquiddick, everyone thought Yulasiewicz was just a reporter. And when he wanted information, he went to the local bar. That's where he met Arthur C. Egan Jr., an investigative reporter for the conservative newspaper, The Manchester Union Leader. Over a few drinks, Yulasiewicz and Egan made a deal. If any phone calls had been made by Ted Kennedy in the hours after the accident, Egan said he could get the records from the phone company. 
and Yelasowicz said he could get the numbers of all the public telephones on the island, which might have been used. And that was the third obsession of Tony Yelasowicz. After the purse and the single-engine plane in the abandoned airfield, the third thing was the phone calls. Here's his son, Peter. My father had gotten a number of the phone numbers off of the various telephone booths all over Chappaquiddick, and Egan was to run the numbers to see what calls had been made from Chappaquiddick, or if any calls had been made from Chappaquiddick related to uh, the Kennedys. And as it turned out, there were a large number of calls. And I, I think it's interesting, you know, I used to say, as a New York City detective, they were called Prince of the City. And part of that was, you know, you could do a lot um, as a New York City first grade detective. My father would typically run phone numbers from the uh, for cases he was working on uh, through uh, the telephone company when he was a cop. But he's no longer a prince of the city. He now has got to, or believes he has to go through other channels to protect his identity of working with and for the White House. Because remember, that's paramount to what he does. Nobody, I mean, nobody is to know what he does or who he works for. So he now is is depending on Egan, says, hey, I got the numbers. Do you have the contacts? And then Egan is able to go and run those numbers. Ted would later testify under oath that he did not make any calls after the accident until the next morning, July 19th, when he made a call after 8 a.m. to an unidentified person who knew the number of his brother-in-law, Stephen Smith. And he said his second call was to Burke Marshall, the assistant attorney general under his brother, Bobby. He was a high-powered Washington lawyer, and Ted described him as a dear friend. But on August 13th, less than a month after the accident, the Manchester Union leader published a front-page article citing a reliable source, revealing that 17 calls were made in the hours following the accident, before Ted Kennedy had spoken to the police. The reporter, Arthur Egan, told Tony Alasowitz that a personal friend, an attorney, had obtained the records through someone who worked for the telephone company in Boston. According to the Manchester Union leader, the 17 phone calls were charged to Ted Kennedy's credit card account, made from two locations on Martha's Vineyard, indicating that more than one person could have used the senator's credit card. According to the article, The first five calls were placed from the phone at the Lawrence Cottage, where the reunion party had been held. The first, shortly before midnight, was to the Kennedy family compound in Hyannis Port and lasted 21 minutes. This would have been around the time Ted said he returned to the cottage to get help to save Mary Jo. The second call, which was eight minutes long, was to JFK's speechwriter and advisor, Ted Sorensen, the man who later wrote the televised speech that Ted gave one week after the accident. The third call was to the Washington lawyer, Burke Marshall, the same man whom Ted later testified was the second call he had made the following morning. The next call was to an unlisted number, followed by another call to Sorensen. According to the paper, the next 12 calls were made from the payphone at the Shiretown Inn, where Ted spent the night. There were two more calls to lawyer Burke Marshall, 
which went unanswered, and the rest to numbers in Washington, Boston, and Virginia, which at the time of publication had not been traced to their owners. Ted's press officer, Dick Drain, called the story a fabrication and said half a dozen people had access to the senator's telephone credit card. And Ted Sorensen also denied he had been called. When questioned by the Boston Globe in 1974 about the calls, Ted Kennedy said he had made absolutely no calls before 8 a.m. the next morning. And he also said that a number of people had access to his credit card. To this day, other than the report in the Manchester Union Leader, the phone calls are difficult to verify. But over 10 years later, on March 12, 1980, the New York Times published an article which revealed that the New England Telephone and Telegraph Company had withheld records of Ted Kennedy's phone calls in the hours after the accident. The New York Times said the phone company was in possession of four lists of calls billed to Kennedy's credit card, but only submitted one list to the court. And neither the prosecution nor the judge was made aware of their existence during the inquest into Mary Jo's death. The list that was submitted to the inquest only had calls that ended on July 18th at 7.42 p.m., several hours before the accident, and began again the next morning at 10.57 a.m. According to the Times, the telephone company chose to submit the one list they believed would be the most helpful— They also said they were never pressured by Ted Kennedy or anyone in his camp, and that all copies of their records were later destroyed, as a matter of routine. Nearly 50 years later, as far as we've been able to find, there's only one person alive whom Ted Kennedy called after the car accident that killed Mary Jo Kopechny. He called me around 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, he told me what happened and that he desperately tried to save her. Um, He had terrible trouble with his neck. His whole body was shaking, and he was so afraid, you know, that the car was going to go under and all that. It was Helga Wagner whom Ted called on the morning of July 19th to get the phone number for his brother-in-law, Stephen Smith, the family fixer, the guy you called when you were in trouble. Helga was about to meet Stephen and his wife, Ted's sister, Jean, in Europe for a vacation. Here's Ted's biographer, Burton Hirsch, on Ted's relationship with Helga. He was very close to her. They had an affair that lasted about 12 years. She was his, I think, center of his emotional life in many ways, apart from his family. What she said was that he he called her and he didn't seem coherent. He didn't seem to understand. He wasn't sure whether the accident had really happened. And he told me, he said, I, I thought I might have been dreaming. He said, I I didn't, I I was in a very strange place. The mysterious and beautiful Helga Wagner. Originally from Austria, she is charming and discreet, and she is very protective of Ted Kennedy. Helga said Ted was in shock when he called her the next morning after the accident. Well, the way I see it was a confusion, and it was absolutely horrified, totally confused, and thinking he has already done whatever. He was supposed to go to the police and all that, but it didn't look, I don't know. He was confused about it all. He said, I don't know what to do. What shall I do? It was like um, a feeling of lostness because neither Steve nor his sister Jean were anywhere near. And usually when when anything happens, Stephen Smith, he, he would take care of everything. But he was in Europe on a vacation or something. 
when he called me, he said, can you get me the phone number of Stephen? And he didn't know what what he needed it for. <laughs> he certainly did not want to hurt her, that's for sure. So he, I don't know, he just took a long time for him to get out of this situation. Ted had first called Helga, not his wife, Joan. At the time, there was already trouble in their marriage. Ted was a man known for his excesses of alcohol and women, and Joan was sensitive, and she had her own struggles. She told McCall's magazine in 1978 that the stories of Ted's womanizing had destroyed her self-esteem. I began thinking, well, maybe I'm just not attractive enough or attractive anymore. And it was awfully easy to then say, well, after all, if that's the way it is, I might as well have a drink. And yet Joan stood by him for 20 years before they separated in 1978. The divorce was finalized four years later. And when you look back, the affairs, the gorgeous women that always surrounded the Kennedy men, it all became part of their mystique. Joe Kennedy and his affair with the actress Gloria Swanson, the many affairs of JFK, JFK and Marilyn Monroe, and Bobby and Marilyn. The women would become as much of their story as anything else. But it was unthinkable back then that anyone would write about it. Helga Wagner is now in her 80s. She's married and spends part of the year in Palm Beach, Florida, where she has a business selling custom jewelry made of seashells. And she was reticent when I asked her if she had been romantically involved with Senator Kennedy. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, uh, we were better friends, I think, than that. I don't think I want to really discuss that. <laughs> Ted's biographer, Burton Hirsch, wrote that the senator's friends called Helga the love of his life. After our first conversation a few months ago, I recently asked her again. You know, Helga, another thing, I read the, I was reading in the Burton Hirsch book a little bit about what happened, and he has an interesting take on things. What did you think of, of his book about Teddy? Uh, Hirsch, I haven't oh, read that. Burton Hirsch. Oh, well, um, he refers to you as the love of Ted's life. As the what? The love of Ted's life. Oh, he does? Yes. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. <laughs> Well, that's good. <laughs> what shall I say? Were you? I don't know. I don't know. Was he the love of your life? Well, he was a pretty strong presence in my life, but otherwise I, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, when you looked at him, I mean, he was handsome, wasn't he? <laughs> Helga spent the next hour sharing her favorite memories of Ted the time she put on a wig and a skimpy costume to surprise him at a hotel in San Francisco, or the time in Hawaii when she joined a group of hula dancers on stage, wearing a black wig this time, and performed for him, or the time she rented a helicopter to get Ted's attention when he took his father to a football game in Miami. So the moment he had gone, telephoned my helicopter pilot because I was studying how to fly helicopters. <laughs> and I said, listen, I need you to come with me. We have to fly above the football game and visit somebody down there. And he started laughing and he said, okay, get ready. And so I got ready and off we went. And he took off all the doors <laughs> from the helicopter. And um, I wrote something funny on, on, in the front of the helicopter and put it inside. And, and there was other helicopters. They were all making photographs from above, so we were okay. And then we, I found him sitting in the first row. 
<laughs> yes. And I said, look, there he is with his father. And he said, okay, are you ready? And he let me take the stick. And I went and I put the stick forward. And we went, <laughs> and we went down. And all of a sudden, I looked down and I saw him looking like this. And he covered his eyes. And I said, oh, you better open your eyes again. So I went way down. <laughs> and he looked up again. He shook his head. <laughs> and I waved. And he was like in shock. <laughs> I bet. Well, I then we went down and I dropped uh, our pilot, my pilot, and I got in my car and I went back to the hotel. And I sat very quietly and out on the terrace, and suddenly I hear the door opening. Well, I better not tell anymore. Oh, give me a tiny bit more. <laughs> I just wanted to hear that. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I could hear him walk in, and I, I got up from my little chair, and he gave me this look, you know, like, and he was t- took his finger index finger to tell me what a bad girl I was. And <laughs> You're so bad, he said. You're so bad. And, but, you know, uh, we got some very nice pictures of you and your father and all that. And, and he was laughing so hard. There was a playful side to Ted and Helga's relationship and a private side. He, he was a very good person at heart. You know, he helped everybody. Um, he, he was really... A nine nice person. And I was impressed with him because he was so caring. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he wasn't, how shall I say, uh, forgetful or anything. When somebody asked him if he, he could help them, he would go and do it. And, um, you know, so it, it was really quite extraordinary. I think what people missed about him is who he was really like in his heart and what he really and how much he loved other people and how he wanted to always help. You know, when people say, oh, well, he's got all the money, held this and that and that. It, that wasn't it. That absolutely was not uh, uh, his thing. He wanted to, to help and be somebody that does good things. Let's put it that way. But her relationship with Ted didn't begin until years later. Glenna Moore, a painter who was a close friend to Helga in the early 60s when they were both living in Manhattan, describes Helga and Ted as soulmates. Glenna often went to private cocktail parties, which Helga hosted for Ted and his inner circle at her penthouse apartment. I know Helga loved him deeply. And um, there was no one beside Ted. There was just love there. He was definitely the love of Helga's life. And he would not have shared uh, his romance with a woman with his best, best, best friends on a regular basis had he not had great feeling for her. Glenna says with Helga, Ted could be himself, out of the spotlight. That he was a complex person who had conflicting feelings about a lot of things and um, that he was a person with a public persona that was extremely articulated. But as a person, he was 
very private and not to hide so much as just to have a place where he could have release, relief from the other world, the other him. He inspired a lot of loyalty, a lot of loyalty. And so did Helga. And there was a tenderness there. Ted called Helga a few weeks before he died in 2009 to say goodbye. Yeah, uh, he knew what was going to happen in a very short time. And you could tell. And um, he was just trying to keep it all together because that's the way he was. You know, he was very strong in many ways. And um, it was a sad time for everyone because everyone knew it's only days or weeks and then he's going to be gone. When I asked Helga how he had tried to atone for what happened in Chappaquiddick, she said it had never left him. He had to live with what happened. You know, he couldn't make it undone. In the course of this project, I've come across many people upon whom Chappaquiddick made a lasting imprint. And one of them was Nixon's private investigator, Tony Yelasowitz, whom you heard from earlier. And Yelasowitz had his own theory. He wondered if Kennedy was even in the car when it went over the bridge. This was because of the skid marks the car had made on the bridge rail before it went over. Here's how Yelasowitz explained it in his book. The distance between the first and last car mark on the bridge rail was greater than the length or width of any car. That meant to me that the car didn't just hit the rail in one spot and flip over the side, but rather straddled the rail for a short distance with its tires groping for traction. I couldn't help asking myself whether Kennedy jumped out of the car before it went over the bridge, causing a weight shift that tilted the car out of balance. Here's Peter's take on his dad's theory. And I think that my dad felt strongly when he would talk from time to time about Chappaquiddick that there was a, a, a very good or solid chance that Kennedy was not in the car at the time it went over the bridge, that he was either able to jump out uh, or otherwise somehow leave that car before it went off. He was always struck by how shallow the water was when the car flipped over. And I know that that always bothered him, his inability to explain how he got out of that car. Um, only, I think, furthered my father's contention that there's a good chance he was not in the car. And he couldn't understand, given the shallowness of the water, you know, why more wasn't done to save Mary Jo. And Yelasowitz wasn't the only one who believed that. There were other people in law enforcement, a state police investigator, and Huck Look, the man who saw Ted's car 90 minutes after Ted said the accident occurred, who also thought there was a good chance Ted wasn't in the car when it went over the bridge. But what did it all mean? As you heard in the last episode, some of Mary Jo's friends believed she was asleep in the backseat of the car when it went over the bridge. And they wondered if there had been a third person in the car, as did Yelasowitz. But there was another lady's handbag, and that gives rise and some support to the theory that there might have been a third person, a girl, in the back of the car. Anything might have happened if there were three people in the car. Then either removing his weight or a third person who was there, the car toppled over, landed on its roof, 
and slowly sank with her and bike in a car. Was she conscious at the time, or did she become conscious? Here's the thing about Chappaquiddick. The more you dig, the more questions you come across. And the various theories have now also become a part of the story. You can't consider this story without considering the various beliefs, as far-fetched as they may be, because they are all based on some observation or some fact. The purse, the phone calls, the plane, the skid marks on the bridge rail. Yet when you analyze them, you must also consider the possible agendas of the people behind them. There are still people who want to destroy the Kennedys, and there are still those who idolize them and want to protect them. And what about Yelasowitz? Peter says it was the one case his father could never let go of. I believe that my dad knew more or harbored more than even what he wrote about, and I I sometimes wonder about his own hesitancy. He ruminated over the years, right onto his his death in 1997. He, he really was very bothered by Chappaquiddick. He felt so strongly that justice had been thwarted, that there was a concerted effort not to find out what really occurred and what really happened. But uh, the older he got and the more he thought about it, I think of everything he did, that was the one that um, most bothered him. A loose end, a big loose end. And he was not a guy used to loose ends. That wasn't what he, you know, he was about beginnings, middles, and ends. And this just has a beginning and a middle. And, you know, what the end is, nobody knows. On the next episode of Cover Up. The case was botched by virtue of the fact that an autopsy was not done. I would be willing to give 100 to 1 odds that there would be not one person who would say that an autopsy was not necessary. My wife was called and asked if she knew where her children were, that she better know exactly where they were every single minute because they are subject to being taken. Gwen and Joe were adamant against the exhumation, although in later years, Gwen said it was the biggest mistake they ever made. She said, you would not believe the amount of pressure that was brought to bear on Judge Boyle by the officials of the court from Boston. He said the phone rang again and again and again, telling him how he was going to run that inquest. In so far as the position of the body and what that tells us, from a pathological medical standpoint is she was conscious and she knew what she had to do to try to survive. Boyle did not want to hear anything from me about the fact that she breathed and said, go ahead with your statement, but we will not talk about the fact that she may have lived for any period of time. Cover Up is a joint production by People Magazine and Cadence 13. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. To share your thoughts and theories on the case, you can join our Facebook group to continue the discussion. Just search Cover Up. For more, go to people.com slash cover up, or to reach us directly, email coverup at people.com.